going to go ahead and start us with a word of prayer, but this uh, is where we're going to be today, Romans 8, 26 through 39. So we're going to finish the 8th chapter of Romans. So let's start with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you through your Son, our mediator, and by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we come with hearts expectant, once again, of communing with you together with our local church. We thank you for the blessings of the Lord's Day and the worship that we get to participate in together on this first day of the week. We thank you for the fellowship that we have with one another around the gospel, the thing that draws us together. Lord, we thank you for all the means of grace, the, the teaching of the word and the prayers together, the reading of scripture, the singing together. Um, Lord, we just, we rejoice in all of these things and we know that you use them in our lives to work in our souls and to build us up in the faith and to encourage us and help us and comfort us and instruct us. And Father, we pray even to this morning, we begin our day by diving into Romans We ask that you would feed us, feed our souls with the truths of this passage, and especially with the promise of our soul's security, our permanent security, because of your grace toward us in Christ. And we we pray that our soul would feast upon this truth this morning. And we ask it uh, all for your glory and for our good, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Romans 8, 26 through 39. So it'd be good if you started in uh, by turning to that passage. All right, just a little preview, review and preview right now to remind us the context here. The first five chapters of Romans were all about Paul explaining the gospel that he preaches and that he wanted to come to Rome to preach. And at its core... The gospel is the good news that unrighteous people can be saved from God's wrath by receiving the gift of justification or a not guilty verdict, if you might put it that way, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You go to 6 and 7, and the emphasis is upon the fact that those who receive this gift of justification by faith also receive other blessings as well. And one of them is hope. Uh, The hope of new spiritual life in glory and also new spiritual life now by the Spirit, uh, by which we are able to serve God now instead of serving our sins. So there's that whole theme of being set free from our slavery to sin and able to serve Christ now as Christians. When you get to Romans chapter 8, then let's slow down and remember a little bit more details here about this chapter. In the first 17 verses, he's sort of following on the theme of chapters 6 and 7 about us being enabled now to obey God because of the new life that we have in Christ. And he says that in those verses that we can and also must obey God by the power of the indwelling Spirit. And then he sort of moves to the fact that the Spirit guarantees our adoption 
and our future inheritance as God's children of glory with Christ. And he, he talks about um, the fact that if we suffer with Christ, we will also be glorified with Christ. And then you ask, well, what, what exactly does he mean by being glory, glorified with Christ or having sharing in Christ's glory? And he explains that in verses 18 through 25. He describes this glory with Christ as an inheritance in the new creation that we will experience in when Christ returns and raises us from the dead. So it's an inheritance that we will have that will include bodily resurrection in a redeemed creation. All right. So that was the last section that we were in. And now we come to the final section today. And I just summarize the the whole section, verses 26 through 39, this way. Uh, The indwelling spirit who will raise us from the dead, who will redeem the creation itself. The indwelling spirit also, right now, helps us to pray to God. And we can be sure that, number one, God will glorify us in the end, which is what we've been talking about. And number two, that nothing will separate us from his love in the meantime. So he's sort of giving us one more piece of good news that encourages us in the present, that the Spirit helps us pray. And then he also, he spends the rest of the chapter focusing upon the security of our soul, that we can know that God will in fact glorify us in the end, and that nothing is going to separate us from his love in the meantime. Okay, so this is a, the theme of this passage is all about the security of our souls. Okay, so let's dive in then. If someone would start by reading verses 26 and 27 of Romans chapter 8. Verses 26 and 27, someone just read that. I have it up on the screen, or you can follow in your Bible. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Okay, let me just summarize this: these two verses here. I think the basic meaning of these verses is that as we wait for our future inheritance with hope, and the reason I say that is because of That's what he had just been talking about in verses 24 and 25 is that, you know, if you look back at those verses, it says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he has seen, but we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience, right? And then you come to verse 26 and he's saying, it's basically picking up on that as we wait for our future inheritance with hope. Groaning under the weight of sin and suffering, which that takes you farther back. He talks about the the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glories that await us. So as we wait for our future hope, groaning under the weight of sin and suffering, he tells us here in these verses that the indwelling spirit, I say indwelling spirit because remember back at the beginning of the chapter, he had put an emphasis upon the fact that the spirit indwells us just like God used to dwell in the temple in the Old Covenant. The indwelling Spirit helps us in our weakness. We groan because of our sin, but also because of our human frailty. 
in these fallen bodies. The Spirit helps us in our weakness by interceding for us with perfect knowledge of God's will. Don't you wish that you could pray in perfect conformity to God's will so that you would know that every prayer that you prayed would be answered? Well, this is the good news of this passage, is that the Spirit helps us in our weakness by interceding for us, I'm going to argue, according to the will of God, perfectly. So this is good news. So let's go and walk through this in a little bit more, more closely. Verse 26, There's that. it starts with that phrase, likewise. And again, I think that's tying us back into the previous verse. But verse 25, if you look, it says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, in other words, even as we hope, just as we are waiting with hope, well, so also the Spirit is going to help us as we wait. I think that's the force of that that phrase or that word likewise. That next phrase in the text, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. So one of the ways that the Spirit helps us, this is not the only thing the Spirit does, right? The Spirit does many other things that we could identify in the New Testament. But one of the ways the Spirit helps us as we wait for our future glorification, as we wait groaning in this fallen condition, one of the ways the Spirit helps us is He helps us to pray aright, right? And that is implied by the fact that He says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So the Spirit's going to help us, right? And by the way, I think we all know, we all know what Paul means when he says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. If you, if you don't know that, if you think you always do know how to pray as you ought, then probably, definitely, you're mistaken. And you need to humble yourself and realize how frail and weak you are, Right? And I think that's actually, you know, we laugh, but there is a sort of whole stream of thought that, you know, God has given us the authority to tell him what he should do. And uh, the sort of name it, claim it type of idea in certain strains of Christianity. But the Bible says, we do not know how to pray as we ought. (laughs) And we need help. And that's what the Spirit does as he lives within us. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So here's what I'm going to argue that this means. And when you see a highlight here, that means that I'm going to follow this slide up with an interpretive slide where I walk through, where I explain why I landed on this. Okay. So, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So I think what this means is that even though our prayers are deficient in various ways, you know, think of all the ways that our prayer, we don't know how to pray as we ought. Sometimes we pray without any feeling or, you know, uh, we are dispassionate in our prayers. Sometimes our prayers are coming from mixed motivations. And sometimes our prayers are just flat out misguided. We pray for things that aren't proper to pray for, right? So though our prayers are deficient, in in these ways and others, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with his own perfect prayers. And I think the way that we should probably think about this is that we pray and our prayers are faulty and deficient in different ways, 
But the Spirit comes alongside us and, in a sense, follows up our prayers with his own intercessions, which sort of mend our prayers, in which he intercedes for us in the way that he knows that we should pray, because he knows God's will perfectly. And I'm going to explain how I landed on that in a second. But if you come to verse 27 then, remember verse 27 says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, when you look at this he here, there is a question like immediately when you see the he, you would think the he refers to the Spirit, right? But it can't be because the he here knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So this is someone distinct from the Spirit. So who do we think it's talking about? I go down to here, and I think that, well, of course we know that there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think sometimes the word God is put there to refer to God the Father. And I think in this case, it makes the most sense that the he here is God, particularly God the Father, and it's saying that he, there's this mutual knowledge, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that the Spirit knows the minds of God, knows the mind of God, knows the depths of God. Here it says that he, I think God the Father, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So in other words, there is this mutual, perfect knowledge between the person of the Spirit and the person of the Father. They share one nature. So that as a result of this perfect mutual knowledge, he who searches hearts, searches our hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the word, the will of God. So out of this perfect communion and perfect mutual knowledge between the Father and the Spirit, because of that, as the Spirit prays on our behalf, the Father perfectly knows, perfectly understands, perfectly resonates with the prayers of the Spirit because He knows the mind of the Spirit. And the Spirit is praying perfectly according to the will of God, Because he knows exactly what the person of the Father, uh, what the will of God is. So because of this mutual, perfect mutual knowledge between the Spirit and the Father, the Spirit's prayers on our behalf are in perfect conformity with the Father's will. And if they're in perfect conformity with the Father's will, then that ensures that they will be answered. It's sort of like when you read Jesus praying. In the Bible, for instance, John chapter 17, and you read Jesus' high priestly prayer. Do you have any doubt that that prayer will be answered in every way? No, because there's no doubt, because this is the Son praying to the Father. And so that gives us great comfort as we read that prayer. Well, it's the same here. The idea is that he prays, the Spirit intercedes for us perfectly according to the will of God, so that his prayers, his intercession will be answered. Okay, so this is one thing that the Spirit does for us. Now, let me just zero in on this one interpretive issue. What is the nature of the intercession that is spoken of in verse 26, when it says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, 
But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So, what is the nature of this intercession? The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. One option is that the Spirit intercedes through us, that is, by helping us to pray as we ought, right? So, it, that's one possible interpretation. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, so the Spirit helps us to pray as we ought. That would be one interpretation. The other option is that the Spirit intercedes for us, that is, by coming alongside us, by supplementing our deficient prayers with His own perfect ones. You know, maybe like a, a frail analogy would be like, you know, you send your child up to the counter of a store and to ask a question of the store owner because you're trying to get them to really like be, you know, to take initiative. And they ask the question of the store owner, but it's confusing. And the store owner doesn't quite know, understand what they're asking. So you come alongside and you supplement that by explaining, uh, by asking uh, in a way that's more understandable, right? That might be a crude analogy of what Paul's talking about here with respect to the Spirit. I mean, it's a, there's an element of mystery to how this would all work. But the idea is the Spirit dwells in us, and as we pray, we, don't, we often don't know how to pray as we ought. So the Spirit intercedes for us. He supplements our deficient prayers with His own perfect prayers. He intercedes on our behalf. It's not just that He helps us to pray, although He does do that as well, but that He actually intercedes for us. Well, I think that phrase, with groanings too deep for words, is the key to deciding between the two options, right? One second. Because it seems unlikely to me that the groaning too deep for words is referring to us and our prayers. But if what Paul's saying is that the Spirit helps us to pray better, then the groanings too deep for words seems like they would, that would have to be us. Uh, but I think that's unlikely. I think this mysterious deep groanings uh, would more appropriately be ascribed to the Holy Spirit, which would mean that the intercessions are actually His, not ours. Okay? And so I think that I was going to say, too, that some people have suggested, well, it might be ours if it's referring to speaking in tongues. I, I don't think that's likely. There's no indication that there would be any connection with that in the passage. It's more likely it describes the prayers of the Holy Spirit for us. And so the idea would be that when our prayers are deficient, some way the Holy Spirit makes up for that by interceding for us with the Father in a way that perfectly matches His will. Okay. Katrin, did you have a question or a comment? I was going to say option three, both of the above. Right. Well, I, I, the, the question, though, is which would be the case in this context. And I don't think it can necessarily be both in this context, but I would say that both of these are true, right? There are other passages where, you know, for instance, Paul would talk about praying always in the Spirit or by the Spirit. So anything we do that's good is going to be helped and assisted by the power of the Holy Spirit. But in, but in this context, I think we have to make a decision. Yeah, Katrin. I just, I don't see that there has to be a distinction because I think as he is praying alongside of us, he is also 
praying, you know, teaching us how to pray, just like your analogy of, of the child. So you go up and you explain to the storekeeper what the question really is or help the child to do that. And the child learns through your example of what you're doing. And so through the spirit, though we may not comprehend it, we're in fact learning how better to pray. Right. Well, I, I do agree that the Spirit does help us to pray. But I think that in this context, when it says the Spirit himself intercedes, I, think, I do think we have to ask, well, what is he talking about here? And I, I think, especially when he goes on to say it's groaning too deep for words, that in this particular phrase, he's not referring to, while the Spirit does assist us in our prayers, he's referring to something besides that. You know, you guys are... Obviously, it's a somewhat difficult interpretive issue. You guys can follow your own conscience in terms of what you believe. That's, that's my interpretation. That's why I landed, on, landed the way I did on my explanation of the text. Any other questions or comments about this first part? Is there any significance in the word groanings as tied to verses 22 and 23 where, where creation groans and we groan? Yes, um, I kind of wrestled over that. I think that it's tempting to try to tie that back in. I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, if you think about it, sometimes the Bible will use the same vocabulary in a sort of a stylistic way, right? I think that's probably more what's going on here. You know, was Paul more likely to use the word groanings here because he had that in mind as he had just written about the creation groaning and our groaning in the passage? I think so, but it's hard for me to see how the Spirit's groanings is in some way connected with the groanings of creation or, or our groanings because those groanings had to do with our weakness, our sin. Potentially, I just... I don't know, so I didn't. I don't. I don't think so. I don't think it's connected, but it could be. But that's a good question because to identify that, yeah, he uses the word groaning for the third time in so many verses. Any other? Okay, we've got a lot to get through, so I better move forward. If someone would read verses twenty-eight through thirty now. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right. Here's my summary of these verses. Hearkening back to the last verse, right? The Spirit intercedes for us according to God's will. Now the question is, what is God's will? I think he's picking up on that notion of the Spirit interceding according to the will of God. And now he's going to go on and explain what God's will is for us, right? And he's, so here he's, he's saying, and we know. We know what God's will is for us. God's will is to do us good. And that good is then defined in these verses, right? 
So he says here, who works together, all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is that good? And that's what's fleshed out in these verses. And that good has to do with the whole series of redemptive or saving works, starting with our justification now and ending with our future glorification. And we know that God is sovereignly ordering the events of history, working all things together to bring about, to bring this about. We know it because it's his predetermined plan. It's predestined. So he's defining, he's saying we know what God's will is, is to do us good. He defines what that good is in terms of our ultimate glorification or our conformity to the, to the image of Christ. And we know he will bring this about because he's planned it beforehand, predestined it to occur. I think that's a summary. Now let's walk through it a little bit more closely. Inevitably, you're looking at this space and you're going, geez, there's a lot there to fill into that little space there. And you're right. I'm just not going to be able to touch on everything here. You can, but feel free to stop and ask questions about anything here. But if we look at verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I think we could summarize that verse this way. After saying that the Spirit intercedes for us according to God's will in verse 27, Paul now explains that God's will is to do us good. And notice that the us is not just anyone, it's those who are called according to his purpose, which in Paul's writings is a clear reference to Christians, right? That calling is not just hearing the gospel, but it's being drawn to Christ, summoned to Christ in an effectual way. So God's will is to do us, those who are called according to his purpose, good, to work all things together so that they accomplish our good. Indeed, he is ordering all things, both good and bad. Now, why do I say bad events? Because obviously we'd say, well, yeah, you know, all the good things, he's, that's obvious he's working all things together for good. But why do you need to hear this, that he's working all things together for good? Because of all the bad things that happen, right? <laughs> and if you look at the passage from back, way back in the beginning, these present sufferings to the groanings that we talked about, we, we groan now, the creation groans, to the rest of the text where he's going to talk about all these things, tribulations and sufferings of various kinds, all these things, I think that's the emphasis, both good and bad events, he is ordering them. He is working them together in such a way as to assure this, ensure this outcome. By the way, this is a pretty dramatic statement of God's complete sovereignty over all of creation, right? His meticulous sovereignty. That as to quote old R.C. Sproul, there ain't no maverick molecules running around in the universe that could mess up his plan, right? He is in control of everything. How can you know that? Because he's, it says that he is working all things together for our good. 
By the way, some people look at sovereignty, the idea of God being in control of everything, as like a bad thing. Why do they think that? Because if he's in control of everything, then that would mean that he's somehow ordering bad things to happen. And that would make bad things his fault. And the Bible says this. No, it says he is in charge of and ordering according to his plan, even bad things. But those bad things aren't his fault. Those bad things are the fault of mankind, both as a result of the curse because of Adam's sin and as a result of the evil things that man do. They are responsible. So human responsibility. But God is sovereign over it. And he has good intentions that he's working out through bad events. So, you know, the famous words of in Joseph, right? Where Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? And has ordered it so that you guys would be here and be saved from the famine. So they were responsible for their evil act. It was evil. But God was ordering it to accomplish good. And he could therefore be in charge of it. He could ordain it to occur, but for his good purposes and in such a way that he's not responsible for the evil. And and by the way, we should all be sighing a deep sigh of relief because of that. If we were to say that in order to spare God of any responsibility for evil events, we say he had nothing to do with that. Then what does that mean? All those evil events are not in his control. And they could easily throw a wrench in his plans, right? And he's constantly responding to them and going, oh, no, another bad thing happened. Now i got to fix that, right? So this is actually a much more hope-filling way of looking at it. It's the biblical way of looking at it as well. Okay. Even in Job, you know, that right. whole story of Job, God's in control of that whole thing. And it, it certainly isn't, you know, time for a party, but it was also searching the hearts and and showing his sovereignty and letting us know that he is in control of all things and that all things work to, to good, you know, right. for the blessings for Job at the end. There's quite, you know, Job is a perfect example of that. Job's a, a good example. Uh, think of who is it that actually did the bad things to Job? Satan. Satan. He asked permission and God said, okay. But who did Job say did it, right? He tells his wife, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? Said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So he recognized that behind it all was God's sovereign providence, right? That's a good example. Carried me through one of the things that carried me through when my son was on the earth. People said, don't you want to know why God did that? You know, right. Just knowing that he is sovereign and he's in control, I was able to release it all and say, okay, God. It's not easy, but we have to cling to this. And this is, this is not a, you know, be careful to bring this text too quickly to someone who's going through terrible suffering. But at the end of the day, it is what we need to cling through to through terrible suffering. Okay, verse 29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We've talked about the good purpose that God has, that he's working all things to accomplish. Here, he says what that good purpose is, right? (laughs) That we, who are called according to his purpose, might be ultimately conformed to the image of his son. 
so that his son might be like the elder brother among many other brothers who look like him, right? Who are like him in our character. When will this perfect conformity to the image of his son occur? It is occurring now progressively, but ultimately it will be through resurrection at the end of the age, right? So this is that glorification he's talking about here, which he's talked about in the past, but this is the good purpose that he's working all things to accomplish. By the way, that's important, isn't it? Because some people quote, he's working all things together for our good, and then they define what that good is, right? And they say, I know God, I know God uh, this, let me crash my car to this telephone pole, but that's just because he plans to give me a better car, right? And so they just stick whatever good. It's just like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then they define what all those things are. It's making a basketball shot in the Warriors game or whatever it is. But look at the context. What is the ultimate good that he's accomplishing? Conformity to his son. And he's saying that he, we can know that he will do this because he foreknew and predestined us to that, right? Now, by the way, foreknew here, notice he foreknew us. That is, he knew us beforehand. It's a personal knowledge. And when this word is used, I'm going to open this up in a little bit. It refers to a a, a special setting of God's love upon us. Because obviously he knows everyone in terms of knowing everything about everyone. This is a personal knowledge that implies a special love. He foreknew us in the way he knew Israel out of all the nations. He predestined us. So foreknowledge is is connected with a, a, a predetermination. He foreknew us and he predestined us. He determined beforehand. And in fact, if you go back, if you go to another text like Ephesians 1, 4, he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So this foreknowledge and predestination goes back to before we were even created. We were in the mind of God that he had predetermined to bring this good about. And now in time and space, he is ordering all things to accomplish that goal. Perfect conformity to the image of his son. Finally, verse 30, this is often called the golden chain. Those whom he predestined, there's the first link, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the idea here is that all who were predestined, back here, to be conformed to the image of Son, will finally, in the end, be glorified. They will reach this goal, right? And what is in between predestination and glorification? Our calling through the gospel, our effectual calling where God reaches into our hearts and as we hear the gospel, he gives us faith and repentance and he brings us to Christ. Our justification where he takes our sins away and clothes us with his own perfect righteousness. And it's an unbreakable chain, right? There's no one who's going to be predestined and then not make it to glorification or not be justified. It's an unbreakable chain. So this is emphasizing the certainty of these events, right? This whole thing, we know God is working all things together for good, both good and bad. For us who are called according to his purpose, 
And the good purpose he's accomplishing is our ultimate conformity to the image of Christ. And we know that he will do that because it goes back before the foundation of the world when he foreknew us and predestined us. We can know that he will bring his purpose to pass until we are finally glorified, conformed perfectly to the image of Christ. Okay. I want to look at that word foreknew just for a second here. What does Paul mean when he says those whom he foreknew? Verse 29. Well, it's a word that can mean to know something beforehand. In fact, this is an example in 2 Peter 3.17. Same word in Greek says this. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, there's the word, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. Okay, so there it's knowing something beforehand. But in other contexts, it means that to know someone beforehand. So 1 Peter 1.20 is an example of this. He, that's Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times. So here it's Christ is foreknown, someone. So it can mean either... When it means to know something beforehand, it's usually always implying a foreordination or a a choice of God beforehand. So, for instance, uh, you can see this in Acts 2.23, where the word is used this way. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So it's like, the point being that, When foreknowledge is used, it typically doesn't mean like, it's not just that God in a bare way, like knows something is going to happen, but rather that he knows it because he plans it, right? So Jesus's cross is an example of this. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew this beforehand because he purposed to do it beforehand. When it means to know someone personally... Instead of a definite plan, the idea is of a a special love, a special choice of someone, right? So when he foreknows someone, again, the idea is that he knows them because he's chosen them. He's set his love upon them in a particular way. So you look at Romans chapter 11, verse 2 is an example of this, where it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Of course, he knows all people. But here he's saying he knew his people in a special way. He set his love upon them, right? And the same is there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. To those who are elect exiles, chosen, elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, he chose them. He knew them in a special way beforehand and chose them to be sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling of His blood. He knew them. He set His love upon them. He chose them out of all the people to be sprinkled with His blood, right? So foreknowledge is not, we shouldn't think of it in something, in just this bare way, like God looks down. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he looks down the corridors of time and sees, ah, that's what's going to happen. No, it's 
Foreknowledge has to do with his foreordination. His, he foreknows people and he foreknows events because he plans events and he chooses certain people. And since he foreknew all human beings in a general way, foreknew in our text implies he knew us who are called according to his purpose because he called us according to his purpose. He knew us because he predestined us to be the special objects of his love. That's the idea here. And this is confirmed by the fact that foreknowledge is paired with predestination in this very passage. He foreknew us because he'd also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, so this is just to get us away from this idea that when people hear, they say, ah, yes, he predestined us for salvation, to be justified and glorified. He predestined it, but it was according to his foreknowledge. And then they read all this stuff into that. They say, yeah, he foreknew ahead of time that we would choose him and that we would believe in him by our own volition and by our own uh, goodwill. That is not at all what this is. As if God's predestining us were just a validation of our prior choice. No, no, no. God foreknew us because he predestined us because he he had a special a set chosen to set his love in a special way upon us and that's why we believed and were justified and will be glorified all right i know that's a controversial thing anyone want to ask a question there or ask for clarification about that foreknowledge issue Everyone, I'm sure, is just jumping at the chance to do that in front of everyone. <laughs> Jeremy, I just yeah. I think it um, takes into consideration both definitions of omniscience and foreknowledge. And so, right. if you can separate the difference, there is a significant difference. Yeah, because when it says, when it says those whom he foreknew, you say, well, if foreknowledge was just omniscience, I mean, according to his omniscience, he knows everyone. This is something different than that. This is, he foreknows some people in a special way. And you say, why? Well, that's explained in the text. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, right? So he, he knew them in a special way, a personal way. He it implies, and this is what all the Greek lexicons point out, it implies in the context in which it's used, it implies choice, special love, selection of. All right. Jeremy? Yeah. On the predestined part, I really figured out what obviously this is a controversial word. Uh, right. How do you think from the other side of the spectrum, how do you think that is interpreted like how do they read that verse uh, someone who might not agree with it like what, right. what do you think they think that means predestined so okay first of all we know a lot of people say predestination isn't in the bible god i don't believe in predestination that's not in the bible and they just don't know that the word itself is used in all these passages not just here but ephesians chapter 1, and elsewhere as well. And you go, okay, well, it does say that he predestines people. And then when you start looking at what does he predestine them to, it's clearly 
justification, glorification here. So he predestines people to, you might say, salvation. So it's a predetermining that some people would be saved. And we know it can't be everyone. He doesn't predestine everyone because not everyone is saved, right? So he predestines some to salvation. The question then, people will look at a text like this, if we can go back to this text here, and they'll look and they'll say, ah, yes, he predestines some to this to salvation, but he only predestines those he foreknew, right? So you see it, you see it in, in other texts as well, First Peter chapter 1. He predestines according to his foreknowledge. And then, like I say, they read into that. He foreknew, he knew ahead of time that they would choose to believe in him, right? So predestined according to foreknowledge is a way, the foreknowledge becomes a way to take the choice out of God's hand. He chooses us because we choose him, right? He, and he, that's, he knows that. He knows we will choose him in the future, so he predetermines us. The problem with that is that that's just simply not what the word foreknowledge means. It doesn't say he foreknew something about us or something that we would do. It says he foreknew us personally, right? So does that scratch where you're itching? All right. <laughs> Any, anyone else? Steve. Well, I would just say that the whole passage in verse 30 is God acting. Right. Us. He's doing these things. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, there's this, there's on a, a, a good motive, if you could say it this way, it's foolish, but at least it's positive in some way, noble in some ways, that people want to take the choice out of God's hands and put it into man's hands because they want to, they don't like the idea of God choosing to save only some and not others. And they want to say, God gives everyone the he chooses everyone but some people don't choose him and that they think that makes that frees god up from accusations accusations of unfairness that he would choose some and not others but the problem is is that's just not what the bible says it it sort of makes salvation man-centered when the bible's just so god-centered through from beginning to end it's all about what god does And it's saying he does it according to his choice. And so the point here is to us who are those who are called according to his purpose to tell us your salvation is rooted in God's predetermined choice of you. Therefore, you know it will come to fruition, right? Nothing's going to break this chain of events. If God didn't choose anyone, none would be saved. Right, right. So the idea that it would be unfair for God to choose to save some and not others, it would be unfair if he didn't give everyone the opportunity in that sense. In a sense, everyone does have the opportunity in that the gospel goes out to whoever will. But because we're all dead in sin, we will never take that opportunity unless God in his sovereignty brings us from death to life. So it does ultimately rest on God's choice. The way that's not unfair is because salvation is by grace. No one deserves it. We're all fallen in Adam. If he chose to let us all perish, that would be justice. If he ever chooses to save any, that's mercy. 
by definition, it's not owed to anyone. That's, that's, that's a good point. It almost takes away from the grace, too, when we say we had something to do with it. Right. But we're saying we had a part of this, which ultimately we didn't. Right. And it denies total depravity. Yeah. If, if God were to just sort of leave it up to us, who would choose of their own nature, right? No one. But on the other hand of that, it doesn't release us from spreading the gospel. Because it is right. our responsibility to do what he has called us to do. Because to, we are his tool in affecting the lives of those who have not come right. to what he is calling Right. It, it, we still have. We are still called to proclaim the gospel because it's the gospel, as he'll say in chapter ten of Romans. You know, faith comes by hearing. So if a preacher isn't sent and we don't hear, we won't believe and we won't be saved. So our proclamation of the gospel is not only our responsibility; it is the means by which God has chosen to save. Okay, let's move on here. Someone read verses thirty-one through. 34. Surprise, surprise, we're running behind. So we'll have to rush through here. 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son and gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. All right, you guys are going to have to forgive me here for uh, not stopping um, as we go through here because I'm gonna, I, I want to get to the application. But just to summarize this, he's building on these truths that we've just seen in verses 28 through 30. And now he's further establishing the security of our final salvation. That is our being conformed to the image of his son, being glorified, as he had just said in verse 30. And he's further establishing security that that will happen to us as God's elect, predestined, foreknown, right? And the basis of of our security here is Christ's past sacrifice and present intercession. So because of Christ's past sacrifice and present intercession, we can know for certain that we're not going to lose our salvation. Let's put it that way. So verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So we've seen from these things, what he had been saying in verses 28 through 30, that, it, that God is for us, right? He's working all things together for the good of us as his chosen people. So, no one can successfully oppose us, right? If you're in a, you know, if you're choosing teams for basketball and you've got like the basketball stud star and you get to choose first and you get to choose him on your team, you're like, no one is going to beat us, right? Because we've got him on our team. Well, God is the ultimate beater. Like, no one can oppose him successfully, and he's on our side. (laughs) So if he's on our side, I don't care if the entire universe is arrayed against us. No one is going to be able to successfully oppose us. 
Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is what you call a lesser to greater argument, or here you'd say it's a greater to lesser argument. If God has done the greater thing of giving us, offering his own son for us, and it says for us all, who is the all here? God's elect, verse 33. If he offered up his own son as a sacrifice, he didn't spare or withhold his own son, but offered him up for us. By the way, I think that is an allusion to Genesis 22 and the Abraham offering Isaac. If he does that greater thing, of course he's going to do the the lesser thing of giving us what he says, of giving us all things. And I think in the context, the idea is all the things that we're going to need to get us through this life of suffering and reach final salvation. So if he did the greater thing, of course he's going to give the letter, do the lesser thing for us. He's not going to give us his son and then withhold for us the grace that we need to get through the sufferings of life. And then verses 33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So by the way, how did this chapter open? What was the first lines of the chapter? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in some ways, this is the climactic revisiting of that theme, right? That he began with. As God's elect, those who are predestined and foreknown to be conformed to the image of his son. We've already been justified. Justified is that legal verdict, not guilty, but righteous. We have been declared righteous as a gift that we've received through faith. That goes back to chapter 3. The ground of that justification isn't in us. If it were, it would be uncertain, but it's not. It's in the offering up of his son as a propitiation for our sins. And it's in his resurrection and ascension at the right hand of God where he is even now interceding for us. You remember Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 7, he ever lives to make intercession for us. The once for all sacrifice, like our great high priest, he's taken the blood of his sacrifice into the presence of God and he's there interceding for us. So you see, he's just saying, look, look at all that God has already done for us to secure our justification. So now, who's going to bring a charge against us? Christ has paid for our sins. He's there at God's right hand, saying, justify them, justify them, justify them because of my sacrifice. So who's going to come along and bring a charge against us, right? No one. That's the implied answer, right? All right. Let me just highlight this for a moment. Why does Paul choose that specific phrase, he who did not spare his own son? It's very interesting that he doesn't say, he who gave his son, like in John 3, or he who offered up his son or put forward his son, like in Romans 3. Here he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He may well have been using intentionally language that alluded to Abraham's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22, 12, and 16. Even though the language doesn't match exactly in the Greek or, or even the Hebrew, with what he uses here, the the terminology is strikingly the same because there 
God said to Abraham, seeing you have not withheld, have not spared your son, your only son from me. And then again in verse 16, because you have done this and have not withheld, have not spared your son, your only son. Do you see? Then Paul comes along and says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I think he's clearly alluding to that Genesis narrative and he's making this parallel. He's saying what Abraham did on that mountain and God stopped his hand from following through on it. God himself, God the father did with his own beloved son, Jesus, except he didn't stay his hand. He went through with it. He offered up his own son. And so it brings all the emotional freight of that passage into this and says, this is the the greater example of that. If God did that for you, how will he not also give you every other thing, right? Okay, let's hasten to this last section and I'll read it. You're familiar with the words, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Paul finishes his treatment on the security of our final salvation as believers by establishing that nothing in this universe can possibly separate us from God's love in Christ. As many words as there are in this passage, this one is really pretty simple to understand, isn't it? Right? It's just got a lot of rhetorical flourish to it. So verse 35, that question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one or nothing will separate us. But it's that question that he's answering through the rest of these verses, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The implied answer is no one. Verses 35a through 36 shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness or danger, and then He quotes from Psalm 44. He's just establishing here that none of the various kinds of persecutions or tribulations that we will suffer for his sake in this life, as Psalm 44 predicts that we will, is going to be able to separate us from his love. Instead, he says we will be more than conquerors. That's a way of saying we will be completely victorious through Christ over all of these persecutions, all of these tribulations. And then, in the last 38 and 39, he's listing a series of polarities. What do I mean? You see the polarities there? Death, life. Angels, like spiritual authorities, or rulers, earthly authorities. Things present, things to come. Nor powers, nor height, or depth. And then you can see when he, when you have two polarities, right? The implication is nothing in between. So, he's taking all these polarities to capture everything in the universe and then just to clarify he says nor anything else in all creation. <laughs> so, his point is clear, right? Nothing that exists in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. There is nothing. There's no power No force, 
No event, nothing that you can think of that exists in creation that will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ. The love that he set upon you before the foundation of the world, that when he foreknew you and predestined you, he will follow through on his saving work in your life. But that when you put it, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. That's just like, this is not just cold purpose. I'm going to save you. I don't like you, but I'm going to save you. No, it's a salvation that flows out of this unfathomable love, right? He loves us. and Nothing's going to let us, he's not going to let us get away. Right? It's the love, by the way, of a, of a bridegroom toward his bride that he has, that he has been engaged, engaged himself to. He will come. He will take us to himself. Nothing is going to separate us from his love. So praise God. If you didn't feel secure in your salvation before, I hope you do at the end of today, right? Application. We're intended to derive a sense of our soul's security through all the trials and tribulations of our life by appropriating the following truths in this text. What are they? The indwelling Holy Spirit intercedes for us with perfect prayers. Christ has died for us. He's risen again for us. He intercedes at God's right hand for us. Having already given us His Son, God will certainly give us everything else we need to endure in this life, and nothing is going to separate us from His love for us in Christ. So all of these things were to take into our soul to assure our soul of its security. Now, obviously, this applies to those who are true believers, So there's still the question of, yeah, but how do I know that I am one of God's elect? That's a separate question. But for us who are believers, right? We put our trust in Christ. We're to take these into our soul and know our salvation is secure. We're not going to be able to mess it up. You know, some people say, well, yeah, but in that list, it never put us in there. Like we could jump out of Christ's hands. Forget that. That's nonsense. It's all about God. God's not going to let you go. He started his work in us. He will bring it to completion. He loves us. He's never going to let us go. That's, that's good news. Good news. You think of all the persecutions that might come upon you. And you think, I don't know if I'll get through it. You'll get through it. Because it's not really about you and your strength. It's about God and his power. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time in Romans 8. What an incredible chapter from beginning to end, just full of riches for our soul. Lord, as we start off the chapter thinking about how the flesh is hostile to you and those who are in the flesh cannot please God because they, they hate your law. And we were in that condition. And then to think that you... You saved us. You brought us from spiritual death to life because you have set your love upon us, foreknown us, and predestined us to be conformed to the image of your Son. And you you justified us through the death of your Son. And you put your Spirit within us. And now we know that one day you will redeem our bodies and bring us into a new creation. And that in the meantime, the Spirit intercedes for us. Christ intercedes for us at your right hand. The Spirit intercedes for us from within our own soul that nothing shall ever separate us from your love. 
that you're working all things together for our good, O oh Lord. We rejoice in these things. We find peace in these things. We strengthen our soul with these things. Please seal them upon our hearts, even this afternoon as we reflect upon them. Give us a deep certainty, a deep security as a result of this. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.